Thank you for joining the Rosh Republic podcast. In our eighth episode, your host Adrian Clay is joined by Ben Robinson, an expert on technology and business model shifts in the financial services industry. He joins us to discuss the future of the wealth management industry. Ben has recently published a report on digital age wealth management into which he and Adrian will venture during this episode. They cover the major consumer and technological trends currently transforming traditional wealth management and how they will drastically change the underlying traditional business models of the industry. Ben and Adrian discuss at length how new technologies are needed to facilitate and enable new business models and what traditional wealth managers should look out for when evaluating software vendors. Here's Adrian Clare from Roche Republic kicking off the podcast on the future of the wealth management industry. Hi, this is Adrian from Roche Republic. I'm really excited about today's episode. Our guest today is Ben Robinson from Aperture. Hi, Ben. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for having me on. Nice to, nice to have you on the podcast. Yeah. So today, um, you know, you're usually hosting podcasts and now you're switching sites. So I think that will be interesting for you as well. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's a novel <laughs> to be, uh, yeah, to be the interviewee, not the interviewer. Yeah. So thanks, thanks for the opportunity. Of, I can, for sure, yeah, I can imagine. And, and just to give uh, like a really short background about you um, for our listeners. So um, Ben has been working for BNP as, a, as part of an award-winning tech research team. And um, after that, Ben joined Temenos, a um, market leader in banking software. I think everyone knows that. Um, ben was there the chief marketing officer, chief strategy officer, and he also ran the Temenos Marketplace, which is a platform for connecting banks and fintech scale-ups. Today, he's the head of content at Aperture, a strategic consultancy based in Geneva in Switzerland. So great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited and looking forward to it. Um, to kick it off, and before we kind of deep, dive, dive deeper into our um, topic of today, I would like to ask you, what's a recent fintech-related piece of news that you found interesting, Ben? So it's not actually that recent. I think it's from, um, I think it's from December last year, but w one of the pieces of news that's, that really stood out for me recently was was Stripe Treasury, the launch yeah. of Stripe Treasury, because I th I'm sure we'll talk about this during during the course of this podcast, but I'm really, really interested in this whole kind of banking as a service, embedded yeah. banking phenomenon. And I just think that Stripe Treasury is, you know, another manifestation of that. Yeah. It's also, um, you know, it's also, I guess, broadening it right because up until now we've been talking mostly about payments and lending and now this is you know this is treasury and i think the other thing is also the go-to-market right which is you know stripe is partnering with many banks on the supply side and on on the demand side it's plugging into other people's platforms like shopify yeah and i just think you know if we, if we believe this notion that banking is going to become sort of more and more kind of just a layer in in, in the in tech infrastructure you can really see that playing out because it's like another it's like another service that's bundled into the into the shopify experience so i don't need to you know i don't need to yep. worry about fulfillment i don't need to worry about banking uh, i don't need to worry about like you know um inventory management it's all just kind of taken care of by shopify and i think it's so i think that was a really really you know sort of standout piece of news from the last few months Absolutely. I think what you just mentioned, um, you know, this embedded embedded financial services, that's also a very, very relevant topic um, that we will discuss today as well. Um, my piece of news would be Xenia. Have you heard about the Neobank in Australia? No. It's, uh, it's, it's basically has been starting out as um, a kind of Revolut number 26 type of consumer Neobank, uh, which has then been... Um, um, yeah, like uh, it, it, they stopped operating basically after after raising funds um, because they they couldn't really get traction in the market with such a proposition. And interestingly, they have now 
um, kind of the trend. They're trying to get new funding for a completely new proposition. So they're pivoting into wealth management. Okay. <laughs> um, so they're they're, they're focusing way. now. Yeah, exactly. So they're they're. Um, well, the plan is there's not much info out yet, but the plan is to pivot and to use some of the tech that they have built and then um, use that to kind of um, launch a wealth management, propo like wealth management proposition for millennials. So, you know, younger people, um, including stock trading and, and ETF based investing and so on. So that will be interesting but to I, see how that plays out. I think they might have the same challenges, right? Because I, I mean, I'm not, yeah. I'm not, you know, so I don't specifically know about that challenger bank. I, and is that the one that chose? I think they might be the one that chose SAP, right? But is their core platform, but the pro the problem in general with challenger banks and you know um, I guess also people providing digital brokerage, digital kind of um, automated investments is yeah. just it's a very high cost of customer acquisition, right? And then it's quite difficult to build sufficient lifetime value to sort of amortize that that initial cost of cost of customer acquisition. Yeah. So it is a general challenge for um, for anybody who's kind of doing direct to consumer fintech business yeah. models. Um, which I'm sure we'll cover Absolutely. later on. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's jump right into the topic then, um, which is wealth management today or the future of wealth management. Um, and uh, the reason why we talk about it as well is because Aperture has just released a report called Digital Age Wealth Management. So we we'll dive, definitely dive deeper into that as well today. Um, and yeah, I think there have been several trends and developments that currently heavily affect the wealth management industry, um, similar to the whole banking industry, but obviously there's open banking, um, there are increasing regulatory demands, um, you know, there's um, crypto, there's blockchain technology coming up, um, obviously the rise of digital services, and specifically for the wealth management markets, in, mo in many markets globally, there's a generational transfer of wealth coming up, um, which is very, very interesting for most of the incumbents, as well as fintechs that want to get a share of that. Um, so I think this topic is really interesting because there's a very interesting moment now where the incumbents have huge pressure to act, to upgrade, obviously, on the one side, the technology, and on the other hand, um, their business models. And then there's the fintech industry, which builds on completely new distribution models, new technologies, um, which, which might give them a competitive advantage. And just before we um, started recording, I checked the Crunchbase Wealth Management Fintech Hub, which listed over 200 fintechs active in wealth management, um, which attracted over 25 billion in funding. So this is, I think this is now a sector that is definitely heating up. Um, you haven't heard that much from wealth management fintechs as much as, for example, the retail-focused um, neobanks and so on. But I think this is now um, a good moment in time to now really analyze what's happening in the market here. So that's great to have you here today um, since you spent so much time on analyzing the market. Um, and my first question would be to you, what I really um, like about your uh, posts and reports is that you're often talking about structural shifts so, so really big shifts in industries um, that, that change the way the market operates, for example. So, so I think if you start from a macro perspective on, on this whole market, um, I'd be very interested to hear what you see as the big structural shifts in wealth management um, that, that really shape the industry. And for example, we could maybe start with the demographic shift. Um, I'd like to start with like the, how, how societies are changing on a big perspective and also on an individual level. Where I'm pretty sure customers have changing attitudes towards wealth. Is, uh, what are your recent insights into the demographic shifts that influence um, wealth management? Sure. So I, I'm going to start from a sort of very macro perspective, right? Because yeah. you know every, every industry is is digitizing, right? E even those industries where you know where 
the consumption or the, the distribution of the service is still kind of like analog, analog or in-person, right? It's yeah. still aspects of that whole experience are digitizing, right? The customer discovery, the service definition, the customer acquisition, you know, all these things are, are digital, even where, you know, we're talking about airline travel or restaurants and so on, right? So, and then what's happening with wealth management is, you know, uh, and this is partly accelerated by the by the pandemic, but as you said, much more accelerated by demographic changes, which is, yeah. you know, this is this is um, this is now an industry where both the manufacture and the distribution are digital. Therefore, yeah. you know, it's it follows that it's about to have a significant shakeup, right? Because you know, we we know what happens in industries that that digitize, and this is about to play out in yeah. wealth management. And I think, as you said, right, that you know. Digitization is kind of not a new phenomenon. So why is wealth management suddenly more interesting than it was? And I think yeah. that's about demographics because I think, you know, much more than regulation. So I think you could argue regulation, open banking is a big catalyst for, say, retail banking, uh, digitization. Yeah. But I think in wealth management, it's much more demographics. And in the report, we talk about, you know, several demographic changes Um you know, and I won't. I won't talk about them all. You know, because the report's sure. like a hundred uh... long. Right? But, but anyway, I think you know, if I were to pick up on a couple that are that are potentially more interesting than others, you know, one is definitely the retirement of the of the boomer generation, because yeah, that that has kind of twofold implications. One is that there's a big underserved or, or, or big white space opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. most fintechs that you speak to, most, and it's also true of most wealth managers, they're very focused on the accumulation of wealth, right? Yep. So how can we help people to, to build wealth for retirement? And very few people are focused on what happens when you approach retirement age. How do you draw down your wealth in a, in a, in a sort of systematic, systematic and sustainable way? And so I yep. think that's a big sort of underserved market segment, and that's interesting. But the other thing is, you know, that all these boomers are now sort of, transferring their wealth to their kids, their grandkids. And I think that has massive implications, right? Because suddenly much younger, more digitally savvy, you know, people are going to have access to wealth and investable assets in a big way. And they're not going to be, they're not going, they're not going to want to be serviced in the same way that their ancestors were. Right. So I think this is, and I think there's a, a lot of risk of churn here. Right. And, and, um, and attrition in, in customer base. So I think that's a big thing. The other ones I would highlight, you know, the rise in, in wealth in, in Asia, so sort of a disproportionate yeah. amount of new wealth is being created in Asia. And again, I think this is a market that has very different sort of characteristics to, to, to European or North American consumers, right? So again, I think Absolutely. that's going to impact the way that services are delivered um, and um, the channels over which they're distributed. And then the last one I would highlight is is women, right? So again, yeah. a lot of a lot of wealth is being inherited by women women are much more active in the workforce than they have been historically and so you're seeing a big so you know material increase in the amount of investable wealth that's that's controlled by by women and again you know we talk about this in the report but you have these women have different you know habits preferences Mm -hmm. characteristics as a consumer group and again i think that's going to lead to a change in the kinds of services that are, are, are offered and how they're delivered so yeah. I think all of those things you know, are therefore creating opportunities for new entrants and forcing kind of incumbents to think about their, their business models. 
Absolutely. I think that's um, that are very interesting uh, dynamics that play out here, especially about the, the accumulation of wealth. Like, well, how do you start, you know, drawing on your funds once you have built them up? I think the opposite of that, what's happening as well is the, you know, this, this huge pension time bomb that is unfortunately, I think what you, what you just mentioned is probably also, it is a, um, a very important topic to work on as a wealth manager, probably to, um, you know, help people to actually, once they have accumulated wealth, how to, how to use it once they need it. And on the other hand, there are a lot of people that have probably a huge gap. And I think when we talk about demographics, especially in Europe, most European countries have, you know, a huge amount of, you know, how the shape looks like of the society when you, you know, map out the the, 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 um, the age of the people that live there, you know, so or the age of the society. So it's there's a massive bulk of people and segments of people that are getting older, living longer, and may, might not have the funds to, you know, to, to you know to fund their retirement. So so what do you do as a 40, 50, 60 year old person um, that has not yet managed to um, to accumulate wealth that you know and the amount that they need. So I think that's that whole pension time bomb is also something that wealth managers could solve. Um, with yeah, that's for sure. where, I, where, where I also see like an, an, a big opportunity and a very and important one, one as well. There was one company. Yeah. So we in the report. So um, we'll come back to this, but we, we we there's an evaluation section where we evaluate a bunch of software providers that serve wealth managers. But independent of that, we also have box outs on a whole bunch of companies we think are interesting to watch. And one of the one of the ones we we, we focus on for um, decumulation is a company based in New York called Silver. And what's interesting about those guys is they do all the things that we've been talking about, which is you know assuming you you have enough um, money set aside for retirement, helping you to you know to make that last so you have a comfortable retirement. But the other thing it does is it's, it helps you to sort of assess whether you're ready to retire. Which, is, which addresses okay. the point you've just been making, which is, you know, how do people even know if they've got enough money to, to live comfortably yep. in retirement? You know, and one of the things that, that this app does is it's, you know, if you don't have enough, it will help you to sort of figure out the age at which you, you should retire, or it will tell you, you know, what kind of supplementary income you need by, say, by taking a part-time job or whatever. And it'll also give you access to a marketplace where you can sort of um, – lower the cost of sort of home insurance and these kinds of things to help you also make your money last. So I think that's a really interesting service because it addresses both the thing that we've been talking about, which is, you know, wealthy people that have enough and making sure that that's kind of drawn down in a sustainable way, as well as helping people assess whether they're even ready to retire in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I think that's super important. And, and that goes into this whole topic of making financial services more customer centric and more service driven than it was before. I think that's that's a really interesting shift as well. And um, and just quickly touching upon the topic of this historic wealth transfer, I also checked some data um, quickly and there is an estimation for the UK, which says there will be over 215 billion of high net worth investable assets uh, going to be transferred to the next generation. Um, which, which obviously is a very important topic for wealth managers. And as you mentioned, um, there might be a huge churn if you don't um, manage to catch these new type of um, um, segments, which are younger, which have different kinds of expectations. Um, and just as a, I think, as a case in point, uh, especially due to the pandemic in, in Germany, there have been so many new fintechs that allow people to invest, which is which goes more into the direction of self-directed investing and so on. Um, you know, there's books from the Netherlands, there's Trade Republic in, in, in Germany and so on. And they have been seeing a massive amount of new users, especially it might have been obviously driven by the pandemic um, because people are at home and might see like, big crazy changes in the stock markets and want to take part in it but at the same time um and like for for example from my perspective um i'm now 27 and this was the first time that i have used such a broker 
um, and started really investing. Um, and I would have never ever went to a incumbent um, to do that, uh, just by seeing the nice, like you know, th this whole digital experience that you get from from the fintechs. Um, even like in the, the considerations that doesn't even um, include the incumbent offerings because you know it's you know it, it's not going to be the same experience. Um, so I feel like this 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 is a very important topic to think about as especially as an incumbent wealth manager how to catch these new type of generations that will have investable assets um, with new products and new services. So um, I think we could talk forever about the demographics. Yeah, no, but I think <laughs> the demographic um, changes, you know I think but, what what you're highlighting is that you know that you, your demographic that demographic is is both you know almost like paradoxically both overserved and underserved, right? Because yeah. you know. Um, the underserved in the sense that there's you know millions and millions of people who would like to get access to these kinds of services but you know but until now they haven't been affordable or that or the experience has been yeah. off-putting right so these people have been underserved but when we talk about you know the the intergenerational transfer of, of money you know yeah. i think the big risk for the kind of incumbents is they're going to overserve that generation which is that generation doesn't want to go into you know houseman style building in the center of geneva Go into a wood paneled room, drinking an espresso with a with you know with a with a sixty year old you know um, relationship manager. You know they want yeah. um, they want a sort of much much more self directed experience. They want you know lots of they want the tools that the relationship manager has been made available to them. And yeah. you know so, so I think that there's a that's why there's a risk I think of attrition, not because the the these incumbents don't have the services, but I think that you know they're kind of the services are kind of over-engineered in many ways for that for that new demographic. Absolutely. Yeah. And maybe just one last point about the demographics um, that just came to mind is we, we're now talking a lot about very specific um, segments, what you just mentioned, like women investing, um, you know, people that are just entering the pension on the other hand. Um, so I think there are different types of segments. And um, when we or when I think about wealth management, oftentimes you, you only, what comes to mind is the, the, you know, the top of the market, like people that have over you know, five to 10 million in investable assets and go to Credit Suisse, for example, or UBS, so the big, big uh, wealth managers. Um, and um, what's your opinion on like the down market? Um, is there like, obviously, it seems like there are different different kinds of segments that have been underserved and especially um, like really from the top of like from the bottom of the market where you have like people that just want to start with simple investing where you just round off um, transactions and that goes into an ETF to um, robot advisory to self-directed but still assisted investing, which I think the you know the big asset managers have been doing so far that they still provide assets for lower like for cheaper type of service, but they still assist you. And then obviously that's the super premium wealth management service. But where do you see like the the segment? Do, do, because you mentioned already like um, segments that I feel like are more. Uh, on the in the middle market that has been underserved, maybe do you see like this segment is the is the one that has now the biggest potential? Yeah, I think um, you know there's a massive opportunity. I mean, like hundreds of millions of people who have you know some investable assets, right? That yeah. at the moment have no option to have those sort of professionally managed, right? Um, and I and I so I think that's a very big opportunity. The, the the point I would highlight is is the one I mentioned earlier on, right? Which is if the the danger there is to pay a very high price to capture those consumers because you know cost of customer acquisition is high because you know we're asking yeah. people first of all we're trying to reach people who are very sort of attention poor and then we're trying to yeah. potentially get them to change their habits so 
high cost, yeah. customer acquisition. And then if you just offer you know a simple sort of robo advisory solution, then it's quite difficult yeah. to, to to make enough money from that customer to for the unit economics to stack up. And yeah. I, and so I think that's been the challenge with some of the sort of you know pure robo advisors like you know like Nutmeg in the UK, for example. I think a better model is somebody like you know like eToro, right? Which is the, yeah. the kind of the, the, they they're also serving the same demographic, right? They're also bringing people into the wealth management market that previously probably didn't use a broker or didn't use a, any sort of wealth management service, but they do so yeah. by you know they sort of pull them in with a with something that's very different, right? A service that's that's um, very engaging, very very um, distinctive, and and I think what eToro has been really successful at doing is you know is being able to acquire customers. Uh, in quite large numbers without spending too much on customer acquisition and then yeah. very quickly broadening the service right so so eToro now you can you know you can you can trade stocks obviously but you can also trade crypto yeah. there's there's a whole bunch of like you know services that eToro um, provides and i think that's yeah. probably the model that new entrants have you know have to follow which is um, getting in you know kind of finding a, a route to market um, and a, a way to acquire customers quite cheaply and then and then very quickly sort of bundling and aggregating services themselves because, um, uh, yeah. you know, otherwise it's just really difficult to make the unit economics stack up. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think in order to do that, uh, obviously technology plays a huge, huge role. Um, uh, for example, the former head of product at Nutmeg that you just mentioned said that one thing that she would advise financial advisors um, is to look at providing digital solutions and very easy to access and affordable financial advice like eToro, for example, with, with the social investing and so on. Um, and if they don't do that, they will, they're, they're taking the eye off the ball, you know. Um, and that, that quote is already old. That's a few years ago. So um, the big incumbents, they, obviously, they are investing in technology, as every incumbent bank is doing in Europe. But um, obviously, technology is, is, is changing quickly. And especially for wealth managers, it's a super important topic. So if we switch to that other side now, um, how, how incumbents and obviously also fintechs can react to those demographic changes, um, how, how would you summarize like, the big shift that is happening when it comes to the technology? Well, so I think you know we always tend to focus on this much more through a business model lens than a technology lens, right? Because yeah. you know, like in your introduction, you talked about blockchain and crypto, and you know, I think people like I think it's almost like the the, the wrong focus, right? To sort of focus to think about just the technology because the technology for us is like an enabler of new business models, and I think if people just focus on the technology, they're probably going to. Um, you know, it's, they're not going to get the sort of ROI on those technology investments, and so so that's really the prism that we take. And in in the report, you know, we spend the like the by far the largest chapter is the chapter on new business models, and um, so right. we identify more than ten new digital business models that we that we expect to become more prevalent in wealth management. Yeah, and you know, and it's a classic sort of you know composition of. Of, of a digital market, which is we expect it to sort of split between aggregated models, those that sort of aggregate uh, demand, yeah. platform models, those that aggregate supply, and then a bunch of long tail or direct to, to consumer models. And, you know, and I think, I think your question was like, how should incumbents um, view this market? And I think they have to pretty, even in our view, they have to think about which of those business models do they want to line up against? And absolutely, which of those play to their strength best of their strengths? And you know, we 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 already see some movement here, right? So 
in terms of platforms, we see people like Goldman Sachs, Standard Chartered, BBVA starting to to move in that direction, which is they you know they pretty much decided that they're going to offer up their platforms to anybody who wants to build new financial services or plug financial services into their existing offering, right? So, yeah, um, you know, so Goldman's now offers its Marcus platform uh, as as a you know as a BAS as a banking as a service yeah. platform and. And yeah. what what we see, what we don't see very much of is, particularly in the wealth space, is incumbents that are moving towards the aggregation model, which seems to be the most obvious play to, to us. And then the real danger is that they kind of don't make a definitive decision, right, between being a platform or being an aggregator, and they're kind of squeezed into becoming a long tail supplier, but and they just yeah. do not have the sort of cost base to be able to do that profitably. Yeah. So, you know, I think this is for a lot of Incomes, I think this is going to be a painful transition unless they kind of get on top of it and yeah, and you know move into a position of sort of proactive strategic planning. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very, very interesting twist. I mean, when I uh, always like read the reports and, and you know talk to bankers, uh, everyone is talking about replatforming and kind of using, um, you know, go, migrating to the cloud. And uh, I think that's there's always this technology lifecycle, and often those discussions are around the cost base and around saving costs, whereas. Yeah. What you just mentioned, rarely I see that people are holistic or like the, you know, the people that work in the, in the industry are holistically looking at emerging business models and as technology as a way to enable those new business models and not just as a way to cut more costs or to streamline operations and so on. So, so uh, having this holistic um, business model focus is the, like, I think a very interesting um, perspective to look at it when you, yeah, when think, you look at it. So I guess we'll come back and discuss the evaluation that we did, but you know, yeah. we we sort of separate the vendors into their ability to to help introduce new technologies and introduce new technologies and new business models. And I think the problem, yeah. to your point, right? I think the problem is if you if you just sort of think, okay, we need to move to the cloud, right? Because we need to cut costs. Then you know, I think the risky face is that you might you know you might make the wrong technology vendor choice because you know most vendors can deploy in the cloud, but but. But that's not kind of the end objective. The end objective should be yeah. to deliver wonderful, new, much enhanced customer experiences. And I think that takes more radical technology innovation or and or, um, you know, business model innovation. And I, our slight frustration when we speak to wealth managers is that kind of nobody's in charge of thinking about business model innovation. Yeah. You know, and, and there are so many sort of, but yet paradoxically, there are so many kind of, challenges to overcome within an organization, right? The risk of cannibalization, um, the kind of product managers fear, you know, the, the whole like kind of reluctance to open up data, the, you know, and all, all of the sort of mechanisms, reporting mechanisms, kind of remuneration schemes and everything that's sort of wedded to the old world that makes it very difficult to transition business models. And yeah. that would be hard anyway, but it's even harder, you know, given the fact that most people don't look at technology kind of decisions through that through that lens yeah absolutely and I, I would like to um, ask a little bit more about this aggregation model that you just mentioned um, since aggregation and you know platforms they're always used kind of interchangeably and so on how do you see like an aggregation model can you take can you kind of make that a little bit more tangible in wealth management? Is there like an aggregator that is already operating on the market very successfully or how do you see that business model evolving in wealth management? Well, so I would say there aren't very many aggregator models in wealth management yet. And I think, you know, I think there's two types, right? There's the, um, there's the sort of embedded model, right? Which is where yeah. you already have an existing customer base 
and but you're not necessarily a financial institution or you're a financial institution but not offering wealth management today and you use the pull of that that customer base in order to to kind of you know embed wealth management into your service and i think there's two within that i think there's two types right there's the you know there's the kind of more tightly embedded option you know i feel like the, the example that people use is kind of like payments within the uber experience right which is yeah you know so it becomes integral to the overall experience right and i think you could see that for example happening with lawyers or accountants or one, one of the companies we profile on the report is gusto i don't know if you know these guys but it's a sort of employee yeah. wellness platform right and, the, and those guys yeah. because because they're already con, you know because they're, they're already this sort of helping people to manage their money better right to so you know, making their their salary last longer, or they're helping them to yep. draw against early against their salary. Like they've already started to help people to um, put money into savings products, and now they're looking at helping people to put that money into kind of you know automated investments and and ETFs and stuff. So that's that seems a natural progression in the same way as like you know it would be easy for your lawyer also to kind of help you to to become the conduit into wealth management or your accountant the same right. So I think. That, that might yeah, be yeah. where we see examples of embedded wealth management. The other one is the super apps, right? You know, the super apps, yeah. you know, they become sort of your one-stop shop for your digital life. And so, you know, uh, yesterday we had a, a webinar where we had Tinkoff Bank on. You know, so Tinkoff Bank has a super app. And they've now put wealth management into the super app. Um, yeah. you know, Gojek in, in Indonesia launched um, wealth services to their customer base this year. So I think, again, super apps is another obvious place to aggregate um, wealth management services. And so I think, yeah. a, you know, the, the aggregation opportunity is, is you know, is, is available to, to everybody that has, you know, uh, okay. a lot of customers, right? I think where, where, yeah. where it makes sense in, in wealth management is for the large incumbents, right? So because it's, the, the challenge with aggregation is always about, engagement versus trust that's the yep. sort of the, the trade-off right and i think you know obviously all the big tech platforms have plenty of engagement but yep. they lack the same level of trust and so i think any kind of bank or wealth manager led aggregation opportunity has to play on trust and therefore in our mind it has to be some sort of curated marketplace type aggregation yep. service yep. which is you know I'm already using, say, UBS, right, for my basic banking and, you know, and I've started to use them for brokerage or whatever. How can they wrap around that whole bunch of other services that I might want and to help me get access to them on a preferential basis, help me help match me up with exactly the right service for my needs yeah. based on my context? I think yeah. that's the opportunity, but it comes back, you know, the, the reason we haven't seen many examples so far comes back to the points that we've been discussing, which is, you know, most banks don't think in these terms, right? They they still see themselves as being as, as being one stop, you know, as, as being integrated providers of all the services they offer to their customers. They're not kind of yet in the mindset where they want to source products and services from third parties. Um, yeah, so I yeah, think it yeah. is is a big sort of cultural challenge, but it's but it's the obvious play for those people that have trust. Yeah, it's almost like they have still this very linear manufacturing type of style, like old economy type of style thinking when it comes to strategy verse in the future, especially I'm also really big proponent of like this embedded banking trend. Um, and in order to build new business models on that, you also really need to change your whole mindset about strategy. It's where it's really about building networks and ecosystems, which has complete different dynamics to what banking was before. So I think that's a huge mindset um, change there as well. Um, and what you just mentioned also about the aggregation rem really reminds me of um, this typical strategic choice that most 
financial services institutions now need to make, which is either you move up the stack, become an aggregator, become a platform, um, you know, instead of just providing standardized services um, and only your own services to your own existing customers, then you need to move up and, and what you just mentioned, augment your own services with other third party, potentially products and services to really um, make your whole product offering contextually relevant, relevant to your um, own clients. Um, or you move down the stack, where, which brings us to the topic of banking as a service, um, which, which took a really big part of your new report as well. So, and, and talking about aggregation and so on, the you know the the, the parties that aggregate often might also use banking as a service providers to bring in those those type of new services into their own offerings. Um, how do how do you see this whole banking as a service service topic uh, playing out in wealth management? Well, so I'm going to start by the picking up on the point you made, right? Which is you know strategy or strategic planning has kind of has be completely sort of tipped over right it's it's um yeah what was important historically was having massive you know scale economies right so that yeah. you could drive down unit costs and be able to to um you know to to serve your customers at a cheaper price spend more on, mar on marketing to drive demand and so on right now it's yeah. all it's all kind of about demand aggregation right which is you know the the difficult thing is getting access to customers and once you have access to customers it's then you know uh using that pool to kind of offer a whole bunch of you know uh you know using that pool to create a network and then delivering a rich and richer customer experience and yep. most most banks i agree with you still think about it in through the old paradigm of like you know how do we how do we drive supply side economies of scale um yeah but the reason it's relevant is because you know why why is banking as a service suddenly you know such a big topic you know, and we, we could we could argue it's because technology makes it possible. You know, APIs and so on. But it's that's not the reason. The reason is because um, if you've got access to customers, you know, if you've got a very engaged customer base, then you don't need to be a financial services, you know, pure play financial services provider to be able to provide financial services to that customer base. Because we're seeing a very we're seeing a big split between um, manufacturing and, and distribution in, in the supply chain. And yeah. You know, the reason we spend so much so much time in the report talking about banking as a service is because it's it's really quite nuanced as a space, right? Um, so, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people sort of say, you know, a core banking provider could never be a banking as a service provider and, and things like that. And, I th yeah. and our view is all of these things are quite um, nuanced and, and some of these boundaries are quite blurred, right? Because I think the, the way that we look at this is, you know, is a banking as a service provider is is the service kind of integrated in, you know integrated vertically integrated is it modular uh, to what extent is it regulated unregulated and so we we offer a sort of different schematic to look at this space which um which yeah. I, I think is quite useful for people but in addition i think w what's starting to play out is that we're probably entering into kind of a three horse race here right which is um, you know who's going to dominate the banking as a service space, right? You know who's yeah. who's going to provide the, the the platform that sits between sort of many brands on the demand side that want to integrate banking into their service, between the many yeah. banks on the supply side that are going to do the sort of regulated parts that, of, of of banking, right? To offer the balance sheet or in or in in wealth management um, context, you know who's going to who's going to be the offer the custodian services and so on, right? And yeah. There, for us, it seems that this is this is really interesting because you've got the kind of you know emerging banking as a service providers, um, like you know like Rails Bank or Marketa or the ones that people talk about. And in in, in wealth management, 
um, you see, you know, it's a different landscape. You see people like um, like Bamboo in there, Wealth Kernel, you know, you know people yeah. that have emerging over recent years to, to offer that same service. Um, so you've got the sort of the best players. I think the, the open banking providers, you know, people like um, Bud and Tink and these kind of people, they could easily move into banking as a service, right? Because up until now, they've sort of been helping consumers connect their data with with brands. It wouldn't be so difficult to to to, to then offer uh, an integration point into into banks, right? Um, and then the last ones is I think you might see SaaS providers start to move upstream into into that space, right? Because if you're already providing a software package to a wealth manager or a bank, right, that's yeah. helping them to digitize their experience for their end customer, it wouldn't be so hard to then help them to offer up APIs to embed that into into brands. So I think, you know, I think we're, we're going to see probably um, a three horse race between BAS providers, between open banking platforms, and between you know the SaaS providers kind of moving upstream, and. That's the most interesting part in fintech for me. That's where all of the sort of value in the value chain is going to accrue because, because you know, the sort of manufacturing part or providing systems for manufacturing is becoming more commoditized. And then the integration yep. channels are likely to become less and less banking proprietary over time. So, which means that what's left and where where's the where's the most interesting part in in the sort of software stack is who helps. At orchestrate banking services um, between channels and manufacturers, and offers this, yeah. all the sort of the, the many to many interaction points, and that's that's super interesting to see how that's going to play out. Mm -hmm. What uh, okay, and where, where do you see like the incumbents in that banking as a service segment? Then um, isn't that then a huge threat that they will completely lose out on the market if there will be new specialized banking as a service or SaaS players that will move into this direction? Um, deliver that, you know, um, uh, manufactured wealth products, for example, to the front end facing um, uh, brands, which might not come from banking, but you, you already mentioned Gusto or, you know, some other um, players that have huge access to, to a customer base and then just add on um, wealth management, which and, and really, you know, tailored to the to the audiences. Um, uh, the, for me, this whole banking as a service topic is not that much still on the strategic agenda of many incumbents, whether that's wealth managers, other banks, because obviously it's a huge shift in the business model. You're, you're just going to be, you know, very, very at the bottom of the value chain, and uh, and obviously, you know, are just a provider, and you will not, you will never have the direct customer relationship in that kind of sense if you're just a manufacturer. So, um, yeah, and I'm asking this because in Germany, for example, Trade Republic um, and other other um, new wealth or investing apps for example they're always using solaris bank or raisin yep. um, which are all new players um so what do the incumbents do do you, do you see there any signs that they will move into the bus space in wealth management or will this field be left to fintechs or other banking as a service players yeah well i mean it's, it's interesting you mentioned somebody like solaris right because you know solaris it has a cost base where they can make money by being the the um the banking partner to, to bus providers right it's, it's yeah. difficult to envisage that you know a, a universal bank could could be in the same position where they could make money in such a setup. And you know, like you know, Solaris Bank's an interesting one in Europe. And then if you look at the sort of landscape in the United States, right, you see all these banks that are well, former, well, they are sort of credit unions and community banks that are providing the yeah. being the banking partners to these these BAS providers. And you know, I think if you've got the right cost base, you can make really good. ROE on on these models, right? So we looked we yeah. looked at a few in the report, like 
you know, people like um, you know Cross River, um, Celtic Bank, and these these guys are these guys are you know these can be very profitable business models for for banks yeah. that you know have have are set up in the right way to, to, for this. But yeah, but it's it's going to be difficult for incumbents, I think, to play that sort of balance sheet kind of you know back office role, unless yeah. they do it as a combination of different business models. Because the thing the thing that we didn't talk about before, which is you know, I think you have these three choices, which is aggregation, platform, or long tail. But you can combine them yeah. within the same business model, and I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating about Goldman Sachs, right? Which is Goldman Sachs is kind of doing a little bit of everything, right? Which is, yeah. um, you know, that they've they've launched the Challenger Bank. Uh, they obviously yeah. they, they have investment banking services. They've launched a banking as a service. They're the bank yeah. to to Stripe Treasury. So they're sort of playing all over the field, which. M- makes sense if you do it in a sort of di- in what we call a sort of digital age holding company structure, which is where you can yeah. you can make all these things coexist and be synergistic within the same holding company. Um, so, so that was one one point I would make, which is you know um, these things are not mutually exclusive. You know, you can't combine them. Yeah, but true. But I, but I th- but I think it comes down to the same point I made earlier, which is you know banks have to decide where they sit in this new value chain. Yeah. Because because I think what you can't do is sleepwalk into being, you know, a balance sheet provider. Because you know that's going to be completely unpalatable to your shareholders yeah. and everybody else. Um, I think. So I think you've you've got to make a conscious decision about like where you sit. And, and, and if if being a long tail provider is is the right answer, or if it's part of the answer, then you just need to make sure that you know that the services is kind of su- sufficiently differentiated, and that the cost base allows you to be a, a niche provider. Yeah, absolutely. I think I really like the the Goldman Sachs example. I think they're doing everything right when it comes to the banking as a service play. Um, whereas they have, I think, launched it as a completely separate business unit um, a few years ago, and obviously built it up very strategically and layered more and more services on top from the banking as a service platform to very recently the um, self-directed invest. Or like it's not really self-directed investing, but you can now invest with the Marcus app. Um, b- before that, I think it was just a savings account, and now um, Marcus has included this uh, investment. Um, service as well so i think that's um a very interesting co- combination of those um type of new models that uh, you've just spoken about yeah i mean um, like if, you, so, if you look at, if you look at yeah. something like oh, so you know, i think the the playbook for a digital age holding company is amazon right which um has a whole bunch of of you know it's kind of decomposed its business into small units right each of which yeah. um kind of are very close to the customer are small enough to, to be nimble and agile enough but yet yeah. all of them contribute to the group to the group right in terms of yeah. um you know sharing data network effects or whatever and i think with goldman sachs is the closest i've seen to replicating that model in banking which is you know marcus if you like is lowering the the kind of cost of capital for the group right um yeah. marcus as in marcus the platform is 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 um, becoming a you know a platform on which the group can run all of its services a bit like AWS right, but at the same time it can also work for others and can become a, a sort of revenue generating yeah. um, opportunity as well. And I think, you know, I, I agree with you. I think we see a few banks that kind of, I believe, are adapting pretty well to the digital age. You know, we talked about Standard Chartered, Goldman's, yeah. um, BBVA, ING. These these kinds of uh, banks, I think, are you know understand what it takes for success in the digital age and are getting there right and and not sufficiently you know and are transitioning building these sort of digital age holding company structures such that they can play across many different markets but make it work for the group as a whole you know by leveraging data yeah. network effects and so on 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and um, now, since you since you already mentioned, like technology is super important as an enabler of those new new business models and new new operating or distribution models. Um, you have introduced the market map, which is a new 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 way to assess those software vendors that um, yeah either enable new business models or you know um, help help banks to really uh, build the future of, of wealth management. Um, so. Why did you launch a new, first of all, like a new methodology to assess those software vendors? Was there, uh, you know, what's 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 um what's the benefit over that one versus the very traditional ways of assessing software? Yeah, so um, I have to say that uh, if we'd known how much work it was going to be, I'm not sure we would have so <laughs> so easily um, stepped into this space. Um, but having done it, I think now we're going to yeah. you know, apply this to to more and more software sectors. But yeah, basically, what the the, the sort of genesis was that. We, you know, we were consulting banks about digital strategies, and then it was, you know, naturally they would then ask us, you know, what software solutions could help us to deliver on, you know, to execute on what you're recommending. And then, so what we were doing is we were turning to, you know, to the to the kind of research, the sort of industry research and the evaluation reports that exist that existed to try to find the answers, and and we weren't finding them in those reports. And so we knew that there you know, there was a reason, you know, there was a a need for something different. And our frustration was like, I guess it was threefold, right? The first one was that the existing reports massively favor large vendors, right? Because, you know, first of all, they tend to be paid to play, right? So, so yeah. already, you know, a whole bunch of small vendors don't have the money to be in the reports. Um, and then beyond that, the criteria that they typically use are, is, you know, they, they typically have a sort of a, a quadrant, right? A, a matrix, a two by two matrix. Yeah. And, and they tend to look at breadth of functionality and vendor maturity and again you know this massively favors large vendors because vendor maturity is normally a proxy for kind of like you know how many offices does it have how many people does it yeah. you know which again you know favors large vendors and then functionality you know assuming that a vendor has been operating for a long period of time and they have some sort of basic packaged software approach mm -hmm. then just the more customers they work with the more kind of they're going to build functionalities with for those customers and the more functionally rich the solution is going to be so you know, so yeah. what we found is when we looked at those reports is they only looked at large vendors. And then the, the second problem was that we, we started to sort of question the methodology more and more because, you know, integration is becoming much, much easier, right? Like, you know, SaaS yeah. deployment means that you as the end customer really don't need to worry as much as you did in the past about, about integration. And therefore, you know, when integration was hard, it made sense to buy really broad monolithic applications where the application provider had sort of worried about the integration, right? So, you know, example would be like an SAP ERP solution, right? Which is, it would handle accounting, warehousing, you know, all of that yeah. stuff, inventory management in one application. Because if you were to sort of try to, to piece together point solutions, there would be a huge amount of integration effort and so on. But in this new world, you know, like, again, why not pick best of breed since integration is much easier? And therefore, you know, functional breadth for us felt less relevant than it used to. And also, again, yeah. vendor maturity, which is like, how many, you know, one of the things that those traditional um, evaluation reports look at is how many integration partners does the vendor have? Well, we just think these things would seem much less relevant to us. And then the last point, the most important point is like non-functional characteristics are just dramatically more important than functional characteristics because... Because you can, you know, you can easily source functional, you know, functional needs from best of breed providers. Um, yeah. But also because, you know, with APIs, it's easy, you know, 
and parameters. It's easy to add software without having to write loads and loads of code. And so what really matters is, you know, the non-functional stuff, which is, you know, what's my cost of ownership? Uh, what's, how scalable is the platform? You know, what's my ease of integration with other solutions? Um, you know, and then and then the extent to which they enable new business models, right? So can yeah. can I can I offer up my services to other people's platforms? You know, is have I separated order management from from order execution so I could start to aggregate, um, you know, uh, orders and and, and does it have, do I have a product catalog that is extensible and could include third party? So once we start to look into it, we thought, okay, we need to basically scrap the existing criteria and start again. And so our, the market map looks at two things. It looks at the extent to which providers can enable technology innovation, the extent to which they can enable business model innovation. And and yeah. and, and, the, and what was interesting about it is that a lot of those much smaller vendors score much better because their technology is newer and they're able to do these things much more easily than some of the large incumbents. Yeah. Because in the end, you know, the number of years you've been in in activity sometimes correlates with having quite legacy technology, right? So, so that so that was that, that's one of the things that people look at the market map and particularly compare it to a traditional analysis. And we actually do this side by side in the report. They see that not a single vendor stays in the same position, and so it's, it it just kind of underlines the extent to which this is a different methodology. And um, yeah. And you know, and as I said, a lot of the sort of smaller vendors suddenly move up into the from the bottom left into the top right because yeah. they don't look good based on functional breadth or you know vendor maturity, but they look great in terms of their their ability to help people to launch new business models and and new new a new a new technology that dramatically improves the customer experience. Yeah. Do you see like the 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 incumbents that would be the the main buyer of those? Uh, you know, emerging technology platforms that are, you know, much, much better when you assess them on like business model and technology innovation compared to the old uh, software vendors. Um, if, if you, as an incumbent, look at it this way, obviously it's, that that's more and more the way it should be. Usually the biggest problem is that the incumbent banks, for example, they're not really buying them because they're so young and not really kind of that the, the, the market trust of the incumbents is so low um, uh, when, when they assess the, the, those young vendors because they think, you know, if I take them and something doesn't work, then I will lose my job almost, you know. So there's a huge, you know, disfavor of those emerging um, uh, young technology companies that that your market map has actually shown as the ones that should be on top of mind of the incumbents. Um, so, but this, this kind of a little bit goes back to the strategic thinking and, and you know, emerging business models that should be very, very on top of mind. Um, so I think that's great that you have shown this new methodology to really put it up front to showcase um, and, and to really transparently illustrate how those new software vendors are, should actually be almost favored or at least, you know, get a fair look at them, you know, so that, that or fair, fair, fair evaluation. Um, yeah, yeah no, so so, I think you're right. I think the, the, the problem with the, the existing approach to vendor evaluation is it almost becomes self-perpetuating, right? Which is, yeah. you know, um, your shortlist is the large vendors um, and, and therefore the large vendors are the ones that sort of can pay to go into the report. And it's, and it's, and, and then, and, and I think you're right. I think you know, also, and by waiting so much to sort of vendor maturity and so on, it always leads to the selection of large vendors. And I think so. What we wanted to do was was really invite the, the people that actually make these these um, decisions, right? These these set, uh, these vendor selection decisions to look at this through, in a new way. And 
and to sort of put aside that some of these concerns about about vendor maturity to look at what actually really matters, which is you know the extent to which they can help um, yeah. in, help you to innovate. But 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 that is going to be a challenge, right? I mean, if I, uh, you talked earlier on about when I was working in the Temenos marketplace, and I think this is you know this is one of the areas where I think the large software vendors should move into, which is you know it's, it, it works in exactly the same way as we've been talking about with with you know incumbent wealth managers. You know, every business yep. is, is going to take a similar is going to follow a similar structure, right? And I think the 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 um, opportunity for large software vendors is to act as aggregation points as well, right? Because yep. you know they already they already have very large customer numbers, but up yep. until now they haven't really thought about that as you know as being a big advantage, other than sort of providing lots of revenue and therefore helping them to sort of spend more on R and D. The, yep. the 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 real opportunity is they, they you know they 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 sort of they have lots of customers. The software is embedded in in those customer organizations, whether on premise or SaaS. And that gives them a trusted existing relationship from, with, from which to be able to aggregate best of breed services, right? And I think, yeah. you know, so I think marketplaces are a big thing for, for, um, for kind of large vendors to, be able to, to yeah. provide the sort of, not just the integration points into those third-party services, third-party um, application providers, but also, as you said, right, so to overcome those challenges around, you know, procurement, and you know, yeah. to make it much easier for, for a large bank, for example, to buy a small tech vendor, which is, yeah. you know, you, you, you become not just the integration point, but also you help with by, by um, certifying that application potentially and helping with procuring that application easily, which is interesting. Yeah. And then I think in this whole kind of new world of, of open finance, I think there's also another aggregation point, which is you don't just help banks and wealth managers to access um, complementary Banking applications, but you also help them to access banking services. And so we, we, you know, with some of the vendors that we covered in the report, they're they're doing that, right? They're not they have a marketplace to help you know you to find, get access to sort of you know security solutions for KYC and and so on. Yeah. Right? And they help you to so they help you to get access to complementary functionality, but they also help you to get access to 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 third party services, for example, for that provide loans to your end customer, right? And I think yeah. I think. Oh, more and more, the, the the providers will need to become the aggregation point for both applications and services. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think, um, well, I mean, the, the incumbents obviously should then take a. Is that like one of the conclusions of this market map that the incumbents should then really look at those new emerging software players that are enabling new business models and new technologies um, or technological advantages? Um, how, uh, like, what, what what has been like the key key recommendation for the incumbent wealth managers that are now <clears throat> Not yet, for example, focused on the, those new type of emerging business models. Um, how, how far do you see like this, this evolution now playing out? Is this something you already mentioned? Sleepwalking. Is this something that can still go on forever, and they will just somehow make moves in the next five to ten years, or do you see this like as a very urgent type of um, action that that you know the incumbent wealth managers should take should take on now? Well, the, the, you know, is is I guess it's self serving of me to say that I think it's urgent, right? You know, so. I would encourage, like, you know, the joke here would be to stop, you know, I encourage you to urgently buy the report, read it. Yeah. And so on. But, <laughs> but I think it's probably more urgent than a lot of wealth managers think. Yeah. And and what, one of the interesting things with the pandemic has been, you know, I, I think it's, it's sort of underlined people that, underlined to people the need to sort of improve their, or change their delivery uh, yeah. models, right? 
um, because you know because you know self-evidently it was very difficult to meet customers in person during the pandemic or it has been very yeah. difficult to meet people in person during the pandemic so i think we've seen a lot of sort of movement on on, on delivery models but yeah. in some ways it's taken the pressure a bit off some of the other business model innovation because because people have seen assets go up um you know they've seen trading volumes go up and so on so that's kind of cushioned them a bit from some of the other changes that are necessary because you know business model innovation is really a function of of delivery models um yeah. sourcing models and operating models and i think what will happen post pandemic is they may have made some changes probably quite superficial changes to delivery models yeah without changing those other two um parts of a business model i.e sourcing models you know is we've been discussing a lot about this you know which is blending in third-party services into their into their into their business but also the operating model of being able to sort of to to have the kind of technology and the the organizational capabilities to orchestrate it's yeah. to aggregate and so on and i think what will happen is post pandemic these changes will then take catch up and they'll be yeah. in a position where they see new offerings suddenly taking market share a bit faster than they were pre-pandemic and so i think it's um i think there's sort of more to do and so i think i think you know a lot of these sort of strategic questions need to be asked sooner rather than later i would i would say yeah that's yeah absolutely i completely agree i think there there are some really big structural shifts shifts that we kind of briefly touched upon like the demographic change um you know uh, pension pension time bomb uh, generational wealth transfers um obviously also due to due to the pandemic like this huge kind of um, acceleration in the use of or adoption of digital tools and so on so so this is something that that sometimes might happen quite slowly and then suddenly it really accelerates fast and then and then if you haven't really prepared for those structural shifts then you're suddenly um, a big loser in, in in terms of the whole business business dynamics that yeah, are out th then quite quickly. I think I think yeah. one of the ways in which it we see it playing out in banking is all the cross subsidies that exist within a business model, right? Because a lot of services are cross subsidized by other services, and what what, ha what what we notice is that once you start to unpick those cross subsidies, because for example, you know one business line is is becoming under attack from from a new entrant or whatever, the whole thing the whole edifice becomes quite unsteady, right? So I think yeah. You know, when you when you like one of the fascinating things when you speak to somebody like Tinkoff Bank, is that they really view every single part of their business with the with the through the prism of unit economics, and and then they all have to stack up based on unit economics first of all, and then the second the way they look at their business is every single one of those businesses has to be in some way synergistic to the whole. Right? So we talked about yep. Goldman Sachs. You know, how can, how can it yep. lower the cost of, 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 of capital for the whole group? How can it provide us with data, data network effects that can lower the cost of customer acquisition in parts that are not directly related to the, to the, to the individual business unit and things like that. So I think, I think that's the way, in, that's the way in which people should start to look at their businesses, which is yep. everything has to stack up on, on unit economics. And then you have to look at that entire whole to think about, How can we generate synergies between all these different business units? Ultimately, how can we generate network effects from all these different business units, or or potentially supply side economies of scale where you can share, like like Goldman's does, the IT costs amongst the whole group and third parties. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah, that sounds brilliant. I think if you if you kind of screen how the incumbent uh, banks in Europe are uh, organized and structured at the moment, this seems to be rather a 
long-term vision <laughs> rather than something they can implement quite quickly. But um, I think these type of discussions and, you know, the content that you're putting out is, is definitely like the first the first wake-up call, like to really look at those kind of business dynamics in a, in a different light um, and especially to to look at the vendors that underpin those new business models uh, in a different light. So I think that's, that's um, yeah, a, gr- a great initiative. So um, where can listeners find out more about the, the wealth management report? So they can come to our website, which is aperture.co.co and on there they 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 can search for um the market map and they then through that they can access the report um we're also publishing you know lots of content around the report so um our podcasts our latest podcast is a discussion of, of some of the themes in the report and we're putting out a bunch of blogs and so um you know the if they want to sort of get a feel for what's in the report before they buy it they can you know they can look at the um yeah. the blogs we're putting out and listen to some of the other content absolutely and of course you mentioned already quite a lot of what you're what you're covering in your in your report in this in this episode so um i think that's a really good primer and yeah i highly recommend to check it out um on aperture.co um so yeah is there anything else you would like to mention or um did we did we cover everything i think we covered everything Please. i'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about the report and um you know, I think it's it took us uh, nearly six months to pull it together uh, to yeah. do the vendor evaluation to to do the deep dive on business models and demographic trends so I hope that um, those people that do read it find it to be valuable yeah. and we'd, we'd love to hear feedback from people because we're as I mentioned before we're gonna we're intending to take the same approach to other segments such as the lending market and so we'd be very interested in what people think about the report and also the the vendor methodology that we've introduced. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Ben, um, that you have joined this podcast today. So it's been a pleasure. I think that we could have talked for, for at least a few more hours about all those different kind of big macro shifts. But I mean, wealth management is a huge topic, but I, I really like the, I really like the industry. So um, it's always great to really catch up on the latest developments there and what incumbents should do next and how, you know, fintechs could really uh, capitalize the emerging um, uh, trends and, and developments in the industry. So I really like that. I like, like the topic. So thank you for having joined us today. Adrian, thank you very much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. (laughs) See you soon. Bye-bye.